I've had hundreds of big conversations, and my conversation partners share wisdom I carry with me wherever I go. Across the years, people have asked for shorter-form distillations of some of my favorite moments, something you could listen to in the time it takes to make a cup of coffee or tea, and something shareable. The Becoming Wise podcast is that offering, and we've just launched its second season. Take 10 minutes to reset your day and replenish your sense of yourself and the world. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Becoming Wise wherever podcasts are found. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with the late Wangari Matai. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever podcasts are found. And this is a um, national program. We're on all over the country. We're on three times. On, okay. <laughs> We're on um, three times every weekend in New York City. So this book at lots, not just a, just a Minnesota program. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're not on in Kenya yet, but mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> maybe one day. <laughs> so you don't have a, the equivalent of ABC's World Service? Well, actually, there's something called NPR Worldwide, which uh-huh. is just getting going, which we are going to be on. Uh-huh. Um, we're launching in Berlin in April. Mm. But I think that's just starting to roll, NPR Worldwide. So I think, you know, the BBC is unrivaled. <laughs> I lived over there for a few years. And did you? In yeah. England? Yeah. I lived in, and in Germany, and I listened to the BBC all the time yeah, in Germany. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing like it. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And I guess uh, as you, they have the advantage of the colonies. Yes. Uh, and a lot of people still use English. Some Many of them use English as their, mm-hmm. as an official, either an official or a national language. And for many, the BBC has represented the, the media that will tell you the, the things as they really are. I know. I That's know. what they believe. All anyway. over the world. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it has that advantage. And mm-hmm. I always say, well, if, when, they, when they tell you the things as they are not, you'll never know. Because <laughs> <laughs> we believe. You want to know the truth? Switch on the BBC. I know. <laughs> I remember I was, was talking to an American journalist once who was with the Khmer Rouge at the end of the Vietnam War, and he yeah. was out in the jungles, and they mm. were listening to the BBC <laughs> to know what was really happening in the war. That made an impression. On Including me. their own countries. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I feel it's so interesting to me that, I mean, I think, you know, that is a legacy of colonialism. Mm. But I th- I'm quite impressed with what they've turned it into yeah. now. No, they've been and, very and, and smart And in the era of it. globalization, I feel like suddenly the BBC has a new No, they have really been being. very smart about it. As you yeah. know, immediately many of those colonies became independent. Mm-hmm. Whoever came up, I have never known quite, I'm not a historian, whoever came up with the idea that uh, as they were becoming independent, uh, the, you know, before independence, we were all the colonies were known as the British Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. They were all part of the British Commonwealth, mm-hmm. and then at independence, 
the word British was dropped <laughs> and it became Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And everybody accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> and the head of the Commonwealth is, you know who? <laughs> This tiny little island. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I think that is so smart because <clears throat> many of them, and especially in the years after the independence, uh, when many of those colonies still continued to do business with, their, with the former colonial masters. I mean, you can imagine how much uh, the British um, economy benefited. Mm -hmm. uh, and it literally almost went, continued the empire mm -hmm. uh, after independence because many of them couldn't, want, only wanted to do business with England or right. with Britain and because that's what they were used to. Mm -hmm. uh, the, their infrastructure was okay. created uh, by them. Mm -hmm. So uh, they and didn't know how language. to go do shopping in France or if you were a British co uh, colony, you, you didn't think that you could go to France or, or go to Spain or go to <laughs> uh, Russia to All do right. business. You went to Britain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <coughs> they are very it good is, at it. It's amazing now. Yeah. I mean, looking at it now, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. they? And they do it with such gentility yes. and yes. such uh, yes. niceness yes. that you really don't understand. It's such beautiful grammar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'd like to start by... Um, You know, I'd just like to, I'd like for you to tell me something about where you were born, about your family upbringing, including the spiritual aspect of that. Yeah. Now, I was born in the rural areas of Kenya, in the central highlands. And my community is the Kikuyu. Mm -hmm. Which is um, a tribe, or you like to call it a micronation? I, 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 call, <laughs> I call them micronations because mm -hmm. I try to get away from this uh, tribe. name tribe, okay. which uh, sometimes has negative connotations. Mm -hmm. And I also like to, by, by using that word, I try to emphasize that Uh, these so-called um, tribes are actually nations. Mm -hmm. And when you call them tribes, you trivialize their national. Well, they're cultures, yeah. right? You, you could also know them as mm -hmm. cultures. Mm -hmm. But see, the tribe almost trivializes mm -hmm. them to a, to a disorganized uh, group of people who are running around the world in the bush or mm -hmm. in the grasslands, half naked, not knowing where they're <laughs> going true. or coming from. But the truth of the matter is these were very well-organized and well-structured societies. Mm -hmm. uh, and they may not have been Uh, huge, uh, and they may not have um, have had technological advancement at the rate that the Western civilization had by the time they conquered them. But it was a trivialization that meant that they could have their cultures trampled on mm -hmm. and destroyed without regard, because if they are tribes and they are uncivilized, you need to civilize them. Mm -hmm. And to civilize them, you need to destroy whatever little culture there may be because it's primitive anyway and give them a more high culture. Now, uh, a very important aspect of any culture is spirituality. And even before you get to dogmas and religion, 
the spirituality, because every human being has an aspect of spirituality. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I may have inherited without being conscious about it, because my people were already Christians by the time I was growing up, is the fact that my people were very close to nature. And their spirituality reflected the nature in which they lived. And I like to give a story, uh, for example, uh, that, that reflects that. That when I was a young child, uh, I used to collect firewood. Well, a young child, a young girl. I used to collect firewood for my mother. And I remember my mother telling me not to collect any firewood from this tree called a fig tree, the, the, the so-called strangular fig tree. Now, there was a very huge fig tree near our home, and it was um, very overwhelming. It was the largest tree in the neighborhood. And I asked my mother, why not? Because obviously it was a big tree, and branches were falling from this tree all the time. But I had noticed it too, that all the branches falling from that tree were never picked. Mm. So maybe I had picked. I don't remember. I must have picked, or my mother would not have told me, don't pick trees from that fig tree. Don't pick uh, firewood from that fig tree. And when I asked her why not, she told me, that is a tree of God. Mm. We don't cut it. We don't burn it. We don't use it. They live for as long as they can, and they fall on their own when they are too old. Now, I didn't think much about that until much, much later. Indeed, when I became environmentally conscious, I remembered that story. I also recognized that in the period of maybe between 1920s to 1960s, a lot of those fig trees which were numerous in that area because they were never cut, had actually been cut because having become Christians, mm. the missionaries were very eager to get rid of all these trees that reminded the natives of a God oh. that they did not relate to because they needed to be relate, to relate to another God. And this new God was a God who was worshipped in a house called church. But the God they were relating to prior to that was a God that they worshipped under these trees, such as that fig tree. Mm -hmm. Not every one of them, but they definitely were among the sacred trees. You could almost call them sacred. I want to put that on inverted commas. And what did, and what did your mother mean? I mean what, what was it about the fig tree? Did, was there more explanation to that about what it was about it that was holy or... Of God. Well, it was because that there were a few trees that the people considered sacred. And I'm putting that in inverted commas because mm -hmm. it's not quite what we consider as sacred uh, in, the, in the Christian context. But they were holy mm -hmm. trees. They were trees under which they worshipped God. Okay. These were trees under which they would offer sacrifices. They believed in offering, burnt offering, like in the Bible, in the Old Testament. They believed in burnt offering of lambs. Okay. 
and they did it under these trees. So these trees we are considered, I guess in our context, holy or sacred. Mm -hmm. And my mother was, my mother had already been baptized, but obviously she had one leg in the Christian world and one leg was still in her. I imagine many people did though. Yeah, didn't they? yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And and so, but but the point I want to emphasize here is. And what is important in the context of the of the environment that we are discussing now is that because they considered these trees trees of God, without going into the past of how did it all start? Why was it this particular tree a tree of God as opposed to the other trees? Why did the uh, people who lived before them come to consider these trees holy. I want to say that these trees, because they are so huge and because they were never cut, they actually provided stabilization of the land because these mm. are highlands. Mm. They protected these people from landslides. And you're thinking physically they protected people. Yeah, physically yeah. they protected people. There's nothing people. mystical about this. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah. They physically protected mm -hmm. the, the land mm -hmm. from sliding because it's so steep. Mm -hmm. And they also, uh, it is said that because they have roots that go very deep, and as I say, because they are not cut, they last forever, they are able to go down into the underground rock, they are able to break the rock, and they are able to bring some of the subterranean water system up nearer to the surface. And so they were responsible for many of the streams that dotted the landscape. So in many ways, therefore, they were part of the water system in the area. Mm. And so they served a very important purpose. The minute they were cut, that purpose added. And um, of course, nobody quite uh, recognized that until now, maybe people are beginning to see, well, where are these trees? Because we do get a lot of landslides now, by so, the way. So there's a really pragmatic component to that religious teaching. Yes, and sometimes in religion, whether it is Christian, Buddhism, or mm -hmm. Judaism, we have these teachings you read in the Bible. The Bible tells you to do this. It doesn't tell you why. But sometimes it's because there is some coded wisdom. Mm -hmm. uh, human wisdom, right? Really. Human wisdom mm -hmm. that that people have accumulated in the course of generations. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it becomes a ritual, sometimes it becomes a, a, a cultural practice, sometimes it's associated with the festival. But when you look into many of these uh, activities that people did uh, before they were influenced by a foreign culture, there was always a very good reason why they did it. It was very much part of their way of having learned how to live within the environment in which mm. they found themselves. Mm -hmm. So so you were very much influenced by this Kikuyu culture and, and this closeness to nature, and but you were raised Catholic, is that correct? Yes. And how do you think, I mean, what was the Catholic influence on your thinking about what, what we now discuss as the environment? Um, well, well, I think that um, I, I think that the Catholic has yet to come, I guess. I think that um, I would say that the Christian faith has not done enough to recognize its role as a custodian of the environment. And that in many ways, Christianity 
has been has almost facilitated exploitation of the resources uh, without a conscious effort, uh, such as we are trying to encourage now, mm -hmm. that whatever we do, we must remember that we have an unlimited uh, amount of resources. Perhaps in those days, and especially as uh, missionaries and, and explorers and settlers moved into new grounds, perhaps it really did look to them like the resources were unlimited. Right. And so there was not the, the, the need to think of, uh, of, of what we are now trying to advocate that we realize that we have mm -hmm. a limited amount of resources and that we cannot just continue to consume and consume because the future generations will not have enough. And we are already beginning to feel the impact of the fact that there is not enough for 6 billion people. Right. So we have a lot of people in the world who are deprived and we are concerned about the fact that in, some people in the world are very deprived because we are not sharing these resources equitably. And so we are saying, let us share these resources equitably so that we do not have conflict. Uh, but in the past, therefore, I would say that the Christian faith, and I can only talk about the Christian faith because that's my heritage, mm -hmm. um, has not really played the role of a custodian, such as now you hear theologians emphasizing right, that I think there's we a, should there's be. an awakening about that within Absolutely. Christianity. I guess that's what we should call it, mm -hmm. is an awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, it's a good awakening. But if you think about how you think about the environment, the natural world now, and what you learned growing up um, in, in a religious context, you know, what, what did that teach you? Well, I don't really think I remember very much of uh, religious uh, teaching of how to take care of the environment. Mm -hmm. I think mostly what I, I what happened to me was just uh, observations of what was happening. Perhaps more of the science that I, I studied biology. Yes, and then therefore studying biological systems. Uh, and so I'm thinking that you were always interested in the natural world. Yeah. that you went into biology. Yeah, maybe that is why I, I liked biology because um, I don't remember being particularly persuaded to study biology. I just did very well, and at that time, uh, teachers you tended to push you into the area where you were excelling. Mm -hmm. Now, I was doing very well in biology. I was doing very well in many sciences, but especially in biology. And I guess for my school, which was not very much endowed, uh, it was easier to pursue biology rather than chemistry or physics because we didn't have the, uh, the equipments that we needed in order to pursue that, or maybe even the teachers that uh, to to take us in that direction. But, and so I pursued biology. And in fact, my biology, biology teacher in high school became my uh, lifelong friend. She was a nun from Ireland, mm. and she became my lifelong friend, and she, she, she died uh, not too long ago. Uh, so I think that more it was more out of the science and the understanding of the ecological systems and the, the observations I made in my country, especially... Uh, the damage that seemed to be happening between the time I left my country in 1960, came to the United States uh, for five and a half years, then went back. And in that period, my country had become independent. It had introduced new ways of uh, commercial agriculture. Mm. It had introduced uh, 
cash crops and these were now growing in the areas where there used to be woodlots, levers which used to be nice and clean, were no longer clean, they were full of silt. So these observations for me aroused an interest that there must be something that is happening that is bad. But it wasn't the faith. And I wish it was because it should have been. <laughs> I should have been reading right. the book of Genesis a little more closely. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I'm curious. So, so clearly there was a huge change in your country between those years that you left and came back. And when I think about those years, the early 60s in the United States, um, <clears throat> it was clearly a really dramatic period here as well. Not a very environmentally conscious period <laughs> in this culture. No. Although the civil rights movement was going on then. Mm. How did that time in the States, um, how did that flow into the perspective you took back to Kenya? Yeah. Now, I want to say that sometimes, you know, things happen around in your life and you don't, you, you, you're not consciously absorbing them and you're not consciously asking yourself, now, what am I learning out right. of all this? Uh, but indeed... What you are observing, what you are reading, what you are seeing influences you, sometimes in your subconscious. And I'm quite sure that the civil rights movement in the United States in the 60s greatly influenced my sense of justice, my sense of the need to respect human rights, um, the, the, my sense of respecting the rule of law which later on became very useful when I uh, accidentally, I would say, became an activist for human <laughs> rights issues, for women's rights issues. And, um, and, and there was no effort for me to do that. And I'm quite sure that if I had not come to America at that time, I would probably not have made human rights issues an issue. I would, it would probably not have struck me really? that somebody else's rights were being violated. Yeah, mm -hmm. sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, you take the, you, you are a product of the society in which you grow. And quite often, it takes a, uh, it takes a, a special kind of mind to break away from the norm, to know or to believe that what everybody is accepting as norm is not right and to question it and to almost have people say, what's wrong with you? Everybody else thinks this is all right. Why do you think it's wrong? Mm -hmm. And I think that it is sometimes because you have escaped that society and you have gone to another uh, place and you have seen your the alternatives. Your vision has changed. Your vision has changed. Up. Your perception mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. Your consciousness has changed. And so you come and you tell people, now, how can you accept that? And they want to say, what? <laughs> right. right. Because you suddenly see it. Yeah, you mm -hmm. suddenly see it and, mm -hmm. and you see it so clearly, so you're passionate about it. And mm -hmm. sometimes people really don't understand what, you, what burns you. And I think, you know, it's so true. As I was reading about the work you're doing, um, I mean, a tree is a simple thing, right? Right. And, but when you talk about the observations you started to make yeah. um, in, in listening initially, it sounds like, in the 70s to women in Africa... And you started to suddenly see this simple equation between trees and, um, you know, having to walk far for water and soil erosion and lack of work and lack of fodder for animals and malnutrition. And you kind of wonder how that simple equation had broken apart. Yeah. I suppose that's a very common human mm. <laughs> human paradox. Mm. But Yeah, I think that is so true. One of the things that happens... Uh, and this happens to us whether it uh, we, we are it is because we are going through a colonial experience like we were, or 
uh, you're going through an industrial experience like many people would would experience in a country like uh, America and other industrialized countries, what happens is that you slowly moved from the world you knew and you move into another world. And most of the times you move into a world that you believe is better. That's why we are told this is development. Right, progress. <laughs> this is progress yeah. and we accept it. Mm -hmm. And it takes us some time to realize, wait a minute, maybe it was not all good progress. Maybe it was not all uh, positive. Some aspects of it is not quite all right. And you're beginning to see how things have become disconnected. And now the challenge is to see how can you connect them again? How can you make people see the linkages? Mm -hmm. That in fact are organic. Yeah. Right. And that, that's the end of the challenge. And, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and when, I was, when I was looking at, uh, for example, when I was listening to the women in 1975. Okay, so let's set this scene. You, you are a professor of I was biology. teaching in the University of Nairobi. Mm -hmm. I, I, am, I, I wasn't actually even teaching biology. And you were the I was first the, woman with a PhD in Central Africa, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, but that, that was in the 70s. Okay. But in the 60s, in the mid-60s, when I go back home, I joined the University of Nairobi as an assistant lecturer in the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine. And it's very interesting how I got going to the School of Veterinary Medicine uh, because I'm not a vet. And uh, people are shocked when I say that because a lot of people think I'm a vet. Right. You're a biologist. I know it's I'm a veterinary anatomy is the yeah. phrase I saw. You See, talk. what happens is it's a whole story, so we don't have all day. But <laughs> <laughs> somebody well, try me. In a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. What happened was that when I went back, I couldn't find a job in the School of um, uh, Sciences, mm -hmm. Biological Sciences. But I had something in the, I had done something in the University of Pittsburgh with a wonderful professor, Charles Laugh, a wonderful man who really guided me during my master's program in the School of um, Biological Sciences in the University of Pittsburgh. And that man... He was working on the, on the Japanese quails. And he was <laughs> looking at a, a, a gland called the pineal gland. Mm -hmm. Pineal gland, which is, for those of you who are anatomists, which, as you know, is immediately um, uh, it's not connected, but it's very close to the pituitary gland. It's, well, anyway, let's yeah. get out of the okay. anatomy. <laughs> All right. And say that it's a small gland that is very underdeveloped in the, in the higher animals, including humans. But it is, becomes very developed in birds. So my good professor, Charles Laugh, wanted to know, how does this gland develop in birds? And can we observe anatomical differences as the bird develops uh, from the early days uh, past adult? And so... You'd be surprised. I, I cut through so many brains of Japanese quails <laughs> to look at this gland at different stages of development. Mm. And so I needed to process the tissues and all that. And that, that technique, and I, I didn't want to say that because so many times as 
graduate students, as uh, college students. We do things that we think are very relevant because what we want to do is to come up with the results and write a thesis and get a degree. But for me, mm-hmm. it was that technique that I was using to process the tissues that eventually got me a job in the University of Nairobi. <laughs> because I got to the university and nobody else knew how to process them tissues. <laughs> so they said, who knows how to process tissues so mm-hmm. that you can look at them under the microscope? I said, I do. And that's how I got a job in the School of Veterinary Medicine uh, in, a section, in a department that was led by a Professor uh, Rainer Hoffman, a German professor who hmm. was working in the, in the University of Nairobi, who also became a wonderful friend of mine to this day. And he guided me so well and eventually had me go to Germany uh, and spend some time in, in Germany. But because of spending over f- almost 15 years teaching in the School of Veterinary Medicine uh, in the Department of Anatomy, many of my friends thought I was a vet, so... I always make a joke that they used to say, well, we are slaughtering a goat and we need a vet, so come over. I said, I do it at your own risk. <laughs> and friends would call me with when their cats and dogs are sick, and I say, I, listen, I know nothing about what happens to them cats and dogs. So, all right, so how did you start planting trees? Well, in the University of Nairobi, there were very few women. There were actually originally two of us and then three. Mm-hmm. And um, we were being very badly treated because the university had never dealt with women, academic members of staff, so they didn't have terms of service. But one thing they knew is that we should not enjoy the same terms of service as men. But they didn't know how to draft our terms of service. <laughs> but before they got there, we were complaining like mad that we should not be discriminated against. And um, as part of this campaign, I joined the National Council of Women to represent the Association of University Women. Uh, and the National Council of Women was an umbrella organization for all the women organizations. Now, you remember in 1975, the first women's United Nations Women Conference oh. was uh, called to, in Mexico, uh, and women in the world were preparing. And so in Kenya, uh, we started preparing. Mm. And I found myself in a forum where Kenyan women were discussing the agenda uh, that we should take to Mexico. And I came in, I had my own agenda about the discrimination of women <laughs> in University of Nairobi. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but when I got there, then I listened to what the rural women were talking about. And it was the rural women's story that actually struck me. And I completely forgot my story mm. um, because uh, for me, uh, by comparison, I was complaining about minutiae by comparison to what these women were really asking for. They were asking for water. They were asking for food, nutritious food. They were asking for energy, which was mainly firewood. And they were saying they have no income. And when I listened to what they were saying, it so happened that many of these women also came from the highlands, the same highlands where, in the same highlands where I grew up. And it struck me that in that period of less than 10 years, so much change had taken place mm. in the environment mm. that water was no longer clean. Yet when I was a child, I would go to the river and I fetch water for my mother. We'd come home, we would drink it, we didn't even boil it. And uh, there was no firewood and 
as a child, I was collecting firewood for my mother in the woodlots. But all these woodlots had been cleared to make way for tea and coffee. And because of the new commercial agriculture and because of clearing the bushes, now there was massive soil erosion and leaching of agrochemicals into the water. So the water was no longer clean. And that's why in my acceptance speech, I talked about the fact that... For the Nobel Prize. Yeah, Mm -hmm. for the Nobel Prize. Mm -hmm. uh, You remember I mentioned the fact that I was shocked by the fact that the stream where I used to play as a child with the tadpoles, dried up. And the fig tree that my mother had (laughs) talked about had been cut to make way for tea. And these changes really struck me. But as I always say, it it wasn't a miracle. A biologist and an observing scientist can quickly see things are not uh, moving in the right direction. And so I told the women, now you know what I think? We should plant trees. And it was really just... Um, you started with seven trees, is that right? I planted seven trees, yeah. five died, two in survived. Downtown in downtown Nairobi. In downtown Nairobi. And the two are still alive, which is fantastic. Mm. Uh, but the important thing for me was to to see the linkage. And, and that's what I try to encourage people to do. If, if you're going to do anything for the environment, you have to see what has been disconnected. It really strikes me that um, how, how important it was that proximity that you had to that land and also that you saw what a short period of time it had taken for such, for such destruction to yes, happen. Yes. But maybe that also empowered you to think that, that taking some simple steps could, as you say, you know, reconnect what had been yes, disconnected. Yes, because I, I immediately could see that if you planted trees, you'd protect the soil right. from soil erosion, you'd provide the firewood for the women. If they planted fruit trees, they can supplement their diets. They, the trees grow very fast, so they can easily sell these trees and make an income. So I quickly saw mm-hmm. how the tree could solve the problem. I mean, I mean, think that, that part of your story is so important because when people are presented, I think especially with these great ecological disasters yeah. or impending disasters, yes. the same thing with political problems, mm. it seems so enormous Right. That an individual person wonders what they could possibly do. But, I mean, your story is actually one of looking at what you knew, what you were close to, and seeing what had gone wrong and seeing yeah. in a very basic way what you could do to move it back. Absolutely. Right. And I really think that that's part of what the, the Norwegian, Norwegian Nobel Committee saw mm-hmm. was the, the simplicity but also the complexity. Mm-hmm. The fact that this here's something that is being done by individuals at the grassroots level, but it also gradually had the the capacity to get it to the decision makers and make the decision make up, makers sit up either to stop you or to uh, uh, to control you because they felt like you were threatening them. And and that two trees that live can become 30 million trees, which is pretty <laughs> Im- remarkable. Yeah, indeed, because of, of the mobilization. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I would say, since we are talking about the faith, that to a, to a very large extent, uh, I want to say that if I had perhaps not gone to school in a Catholic school, in a school that was run, managed by sisters by nuns, mm-hmm. at a time when 
missionaries were really very serious about um, values. They were very concerned about values, and especially the value of service. I, th I think I would probably have turned out to be a different kind of a person. Because for me, um, as I said earlier, sometimes people don't have to tell you this is what you need to believe in and this is the value you need to embrace. You just observe. And when people ask me, who are the people who inspired you? These are some of the people who actually inspired me, these nuns. Mm -hmm. That these, at the time, beautiful women young women, and I remember thinking, now why did they leave their country to come here? Mm. Why didn't they get married and have families? Why did they decide to come? Mm. And of course the answer was because they wanted to serve Jesus. They are the brides of Jesus. They even uh, wore rings because they told us they were married spiritually right, to right, Jesus. Right. And, and I think that that... Um, sense of service beyond self because I, I really couldn't see uh, and even today when you look at it what do they have what, what is the benefit we are so used to, to doing things because we benefit there is something mm -hmm. we always want to know why are you doing that uh, because there must be something you're going to get when you look at nuns like that what do they get out of that and isn't that an interesting way also to think about you and I were talking earlier about how the Christian church in general, Christian theology, has really not paid attention to mm. the environment. Yeah. In fact, has interpreted some of the stories and teachings that are in there in a way that's been destructive to mm. the environment. And there's mm. a, there, people are waking up to that. Mm. But, um, but that's an interesting way to think about how even traditions which have um, something to correct yeah. can look to other virtues Yes. Right? And yeah. besides just the teaching on the environment, this virtue of service yes. that is there and that is, has been very strong. Mm. And, and that virtue is, is really what we are calling upon to, to take care of the environment. Mm -hmm. Because we are saying we, we want to protect the environment, not so that we can use it, not for our own purpose. We want to protect biodiversity, not so that we can use these um, uh, forms of life, because some of them we don't even know they're there. Uh, but for for the fact that they are for they are for their own good, mm. uh, or for I'm looking for another um, way to put it to say that um, for whatever it's worth, there is another <laughs> concept. Um, if I think about it, but it is to say that you're not doing it because of something beneficial that you are going to to get something tangible, and that's a very important. Uh, um, experience, especially today, because I find, even in my own country, I find that every time you want to tell people, do this, uh, it is good to do it. People want to say, what do I get out of it? Mm -hmm. It's like you can't give something unless you are going to get something. Now, of course, for the nuns, they will tell you, I'll go to heaven. Well, okay, fine. But <laughs> it's a long-term goal. <laughs> it's a long-term goal. <laughs> yeah. And we are still here on earth. And mm -hmm. the, the fact that they are that committed. And even some of these people who tell me, what am I going to get out of it? Uh, they too, they'll tell you, they'll tell me very loudly that they want to go to heaven. Uh, well, I, so, wanted, I actually wanted to ask you about, let's say, those first women who you had this conversation with, you paid attention to what their needs were, and then you planted these trees. 
I wanted to know, you know, what effect that had on them, on these women in their lives. Yeah, one of those women, actually, that I like to remember uh, was a woman called Priscilla Mereka. And Priscilla eventually became a member of the... She came from the Presbyterian women. Mm. Uh, uh, Is she a rural, rural uh, resident also? Yeah, she's, she was a Kenyan. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she was from the Presbyterian Church of East Africa, and she was representing the Women's Guild okay. in the National Council of Women. So she's one of those women who listened, uh, who, who, who were presenting. And later on when I said, why don't we plant trees? And we formed a small committee within the National Council of Women. She became a member of that committee. And we worked together for many years. Unfortunately, she died uh, some years ago, maybe about 10 years ago now. But she, by the time she died, she had completely transformed her landscape so very much that when she, um, when they were putting her remains to rest, Everybody in the community was praising her, not only for the work that she had done in the church, but the fact that she had brought the Green Belt movement in the high area, that she had facilitated and encouraged the planting of literally millions of, she, uh, of trees. And that one thing that I remember women saying is that, you know how in, you always see these women carrying their firewood on their back, mm -hmm. and there is um, a, a typical rope that they use. Um, usually made out of animal hide. And the women said at her funeral that you never see any woman today with that rope because it's not necessary. No woman need carry firewood because the firewood Isn't is there? at the household. Hmm. And that I thought was such a legacy for her. Hmm. You know, the word sustainability is everywhere now. And... Um, and it's a wonderful word. I, I, I would really love to hear what your definition is of sustainability. I'd like to hear it in your, in well, your voice and well, in your <laughs> vocabulary. Well, I can assure you that there are very many people who don't know what that word really means. No, that's means. right. And that's, yeah. So how and, would you, uh, how would you define it? different people have different explanations. But for me, the way I understand it is that you're using resources in a way that you, you ensure that you can use those resources for a long time. So you, you can sustain yourself. Even if you take that word literally, you can sustain yourself with those resources for a very long time. Now, take beyond yourself and say, your nation, your region, globally, we can sustain ourselves for a very long time. Now, a long time means not only our generation, but the, f the future generations and the future generations can be between here and eternity because when do we know how long this planet is going to last? Mm. And so we want to, to believe that 100 million years from now, I don't know whether the planet will still be here, but we want to, to appreciate that until perhaps, I guess, the Americans find another planet. It seems like we are very close to finding another planet where there might be life <laughs> well. and we can move on. Yeah. But until then, this is the only planet we know where there is life, where we can live. And therefore, we need to, uh, to do whatever it takes to ensure that we do not 
eliminate ourselves from this planet by exploiting the resources that we need. Because, for example, we know that we cannot live on this planet if we don't have green life. Because green life is the only life that is able to trap the sun energy and give us food and give us uh, uh, firewood and give us timber and give us uh, fodder and give us and, f- and, and clean the air we breathe. Mm. So we, we know, therefore, that we must maintain the green life on this planet and that if we were to desertify this land, this planet, and remove every green vegetation, we would be dead before the last tree dies. Mm. So it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think in Africa... You know that I mean you talk about conflict, how you know, how it's it's not just it's not just life that's threatened, it's not just whether people can eat, it's it's peace itself that is threatened by a scarcity of resources. I think that in the United States there's been a period of time you know, as you said, those British colonists when they first came to Africa it was it was unlimited resources. Yes. And I think Americans have had a what we now recognize as a false sense of unlimited yeah. resources. You yeah. know, they were either here or we could buy them. Right. I mean, this is simplified, but, yeah. right? And yet, I think with with so many things that are happening in the world, with the fact that many of these resources are, in fact, running out, with climate change, um, I think people here are coming back to a sense that you've had all along, that that this is not just about life and death, it's, it's also the difference between peace and war. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and even that peace is almost like life and death because when we do not have peace, uh, we could easily get into, us, into a conflict and, and a war. And of course, when we are there, we kill each other. So it's a matter of life and right, death again. indeed. Uh, but it is extremely important, and especially for people who live in highly industrialized and, and rich countries, because people who live in such countries have a feeling that even if they don't have resources within their borders, they can get them mm-hmm. from wherever those resources are. Yeah. And um, uh, this message is very, very important to these people because it is important to know that even if you can buy those resources, even there, there is a limit to what extent you can get those resources and not create a conflict. Because remember, all the resources, you get the resources, but the resources that are left behind, people have to fight over them. Right. And because the world is now so interconnected, it it is, and I know that the Americans probably know this more than any other person, that um, when conflict anywhere in the world, sometimes they come right into your living room, mm-hmm. either through television or like now with the Americans being a superpower, uh, a very influential member of the, uh, of the United Nations. Uh, if there is conflict somewhere, we are very quick to say we need peacekeeping forces. And these peacekeeping forces are quite often uh, soldiers from areas where there is peace. Right. <laughs> so suddenly you realize you may be in peace, but mm-hmm. it is your son or your husband who now has to go and try to keep peace where peace has been threatened. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it becomes really um, an important issue for all of us, whether we are rich or we are poor. 
And it is important, especially for, as I say, for industrialized countries. Recently, I was in Japan, and I want to share that when I went to Japan, I, I was very lucky because I came across a word called motainai. And I, uh, I explained that I was talking to um, a news editor of a newspaper called Mainishi. And we started talking about the need for reducing how much resources we use, re reusing what we can, recycling what we can. And he told me about this word, motainai, which is a Japanese Buddhist uh, concept that is entrenched in the Japanese culture, which encourages people not to waste resources. Mm. And this was especially true. They and told it's me, a spiritual concept. Yeah, it's a spiritual concept. Mm -hmm. In fact, this aspect was brought to me, uh, was brought out to me by monk, a monk. Uh, I think his name is Monk Mori from Kyoto uh, Temple. We went in and he he had heard me use that word publicly and he said, I'm so happy you're using that word, motainai, because it is a word that Japanese don't use anymore because they mm. feel embarrassed to, to, to say don't waste resources because they have so much. Mm. Or receive resources with gratitude. Receive what you get from, from, from the Mother Earth with gratitude or from nature, with gratitude. And I, we usually don't think about that. We don't usually thank nature for giving us what she does. Right. And, um, and it reminded me uh, of the Christian concept of let us be custodians of the environment, of the resources, rather than of... Um, the stewardship, of, is that yeah, a good the stewardship thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm very happy that theologians now are really more and more encouraging us to think of ourselves as custodians, mm -hmm. stewards, mm -hmm. rather than domineering masters. Mm -hmm. of, <laughs> you know, so this, this coming from a, a country like Japan is very, very, it's very interesting. It's very interesting yes. and it's very, very good. And I was very happy that because it was their word, when I started using it, they said, oh, this is so wonderful. I said, yeah. And especially because in the industrialized countries like America, you have the technology, you have the capital, you have the skills. You can actually use a lot of resources that instead of wasting them, you can recycle them mm -hmm. using the technology. And, and you can um, therefore help to save how much uh, of the resources that are being used in the world. But see, if you become wasteful, if you are not grateful, if you don't recycle, because why should you recycle when you can buy more? You must always remember, but there are billions out there who don't have enough even to survive, let alone to decide whether they should reduce or reuse. It's hard for people to, uh, for those billions to be, to seem real, you know, yeah. to influence little tiny decisions that are made in the course of daily life about whether to recycle something. Precisely. I, I know that it, they, they look distant because yes. quite often we don't see their faces except mm -hmm. when they are dying and their faces are brought to the television mm -hmm. uh, in our living rooms. And then we are very quick to call our uh, representatives and tell them, do something about these people mm -hmm. who are dying in this corner of the world. But it's happening all the time. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you so much if your work has been with women, 
And you spoke, you write a lot about the balance of power between men and women. And I wanted to ask if you think of that, the balance of power between men and women, also as a sustainability issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do. The, the truth of the matter is we are all resources anyway. Uh, we what? We a resource. We are a human resource. Okay. And, and the biggest problem that we have had, especially in the women movement, is trying to convince uh, the, the other half that we are a very important resource and that we can and we do make great contributions and therefore we should be uh, respected. Talk of the word respect. We should be respected. We should be appreciated. Our work should be quantified. We should be compensated. And that we should not be taken for granted. Um, now, that's, unfortunately, 30 years ago in 1975, when I, as I said earlier, when we were meeting to go to Mexico, we were going there because we wanted to... For the United Nations Women, Women's Conference. Women's Conference, the, first the very first one. And, and that, it was at that conference that we declared the women decayed. Well, it's 35, almost 36 years later. And, um, and we are still uh, talking about it. Obviously, we have made great strides, and we should be very, very proud of what the strides we have made. Uh, but it is true that uh, women are still a very unappreciated resource in many mm -hmm. uh, societies. I'm in the Kenya government at the moment, and I can see how, how quickly women, who even very competent women, are sacrificed on the altar of political convenience. Mm. That's, that's a strong sentence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, over these years, you, it's not all been happy ceremonies planting trees. I mm -hmm. mean, you've been scorned and you've been pursued and you've been beaten. You've, you've stood up to powerful forces. And uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, you didn't know when all this started that, that it would become so large that you would found this great movement, that you would win the Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, but how, what, what kept you going? What, what, what were the resources you drew on um, in the now, hardest times? Yeah. Now, again, I would probably say that that is where the, 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 the experience uh, and the, the being molded by people of faith mm -hmm. Uh, made a lot of difference, that although I was not professing my faith, I'm quite sure that I was grounded in that um, moral fiber of wanting to do the right thing, uh, of wanting to, to pursue the right thing. And I'm, as I, we said earlier, this, I'm quite sure, is part of the... Uh, the, the heritage that I brought with me from Atchison, Kansas. Tiny little Atchison, Kansas is very That's powerful. That's where you went to college. The, <laughs> Benedict, where, the small Benedictine college. The Benedictine college. And, yes. and I, I spent four years there, most wonderful years with the Benedictine sisters mm -hmm. uh, and, and fathers. And, and I know that deep inside me, that moral fiber that was molded by those... Um, uh, religious leaders really helped me pursue what I believed was the right. I, I was so sure that this was the right thing because I, I could see it was quite obvious. And even those who were persecuting me knew, and I knew they knew. 
but they did not want to knew that you me. were doing the right thing. Yeah, they knew I was doing the right thing. <laughs> okay. But they didn't want me to do it because it was inconveniencing them. And I knew that. Mm. Uh, but I, I felt that it is not right. And I, again, I say that's the heritage I brought with me from America. Uh, that pursuing the fact that people have a right to clean drinking water. So anybody who is really polluting that water knows he's doing the wrong thing or knows he should not do. Mm -hmm. Anybody who is interfering with the catchment areas where these rivers come from so that some rivers start drying up, he knows he's doing the wrong thing. And because he's doing it to enrich himself, and he's enriching himself with resources that have been entrusted to him by the public. And he knows the public don't know. And if they know, they are too afraid to challenge him. So me, when I challenge, he can afford to intimidate. He can afford to ridicule because I'm alone. But I somehow I had that conviction that I'm right and he knows it. Now, I think there's something really interesting in that, that you didn't, it sounds to me like you always assumed that there was a, a morality, a conscience somewhere, even inside the people who were, or a, an ability to see what you saw about what was right. It was too obvious for people not to see. Yeah, but, but it would also have been possible for you to just write these people off, to, to fight them, to declare them evil. Do you know what I'm saying? But I didn't have the power to, to do anything to them. Right. They had the power. Mm -hmm. That's why they could arrest me. They could take me to jail. They could ridicule me publicly. They had the power. I didn't have the power. I couldn't do anything. So the only thing I had, the option I had was to work with these ordinary people and try to teach them. Initially, I didn't do any teaching. But gradually, when I saw that people were being taken advantage of because they were ignorant. Mm -hmm. I started reading the Bible, you know, the book of Hosea. The book of... <laughs> You're reading the, the prophets? Yeah, the, the prophet. I wanted to know, what did the prophets do when these things happened? And I read about the books of Hosea. Sometimes it's fascinating mm. to read about these um, old uh, uh, Bible stories and mm -hmm. see, uh, and, and sometimes the stories you read, they are are almost replicated in the world we live in. So I read, for example, book of the book of Hosea quite often, and I think it is chapter four, and it talks about this uh, prophet who is sent to the people of Israel to tell them they will perish because they are so ignorant. Mm -hmm. And he said, you are ignorant, and even the priests are ignorant, and you are not listening to the instructions of the Lord, and so you will perish. So I, I saw literally that our people were perishing because they were ignorant. They didn't understand uh, the linkages between the problems they were facing and the environmental degradation that was happening right there below their, their feet. It's an, interesting, um, it's an interesting model, too, because it is, it is that what the prophets were doing, what you were doing, in a sense, is railing against your own people on, on for their sake. Yeah. Right? <laughs> for the sake of their everlasting souls. Yeah. Kind of. Telling them that, you know, <laughs> open your eyes uh -huh. and, and see that what we are doing is very, very important. And don't be, uh, don't be intimidated. Don't be 
persuaded by these people who are in power because whatever they are doing, they are doing it against the, you, your good and the good of your children. So at least plant trees, for goodness sake. And by planting trees, you're not having anybody. You're not having them. Right, right. But I knew that they didn't like what I was doing. <laughs> and, uh, and It's as, kind as of we, an ecological form of civil disobedience. It really, was, planting fact, trees. It was indeed. <laughs> and indeed, it became a symbol. And, and it became a symbol of our defiance. Every time, for example, we wanted to pr- protect a forest that, that the people in power were, were privatizing. For example, I remember uh, we had a big fight over a forest called Karura, which is close to the... It is actually within Nairobi, and it, it is actually essentially the lung of Nairobi, the equivalent of uh, a Central Park in New York. Okay. And, and they wanted to clear-cut this forest and put up residential houses. And I said, are you out of your mind? You need this forest. And they said, we don't need the forest. We need houses. Now, you tell me. <laughs> so so we, we would defiantly now uh, take trees, and march with our seedlings towards the forest <laughs> and say, we are marching to go and plant trees. Now, ordinarily, nobody should be bothered about a bunch of women trying to plant a tree. But because we were marching towards this forest, we were essentially saying, you are not going to clear cut this forest. You are not going to put any residential houses in this forest because this forest is needed by the city. Mm. And did you win that battle? After many years, we won, which is great. And that little forest is still there. Thank God. Well, well, tell me this. I mean, you are now in a in a government position. Is there any way in which in which being in a position of power and and seeing the you know the challenge of having to think about the common good and from that perspective, does that complicate your understanding of how change happens or? Now, uh, I am in the government, but I, I, uh, I can symbolically say that I'm right at the door. Okay. <laughs> I'm right at the door. I'm not right inside. <laughs> and, and therefore, I haven't actually experienced the, the, the conflicts that people get when they are in power and are challenged to do things for the common good rather than for themselves. And it's very interesting because this government was put in power in the year 2002. The current Kenyan government. The current Mm -hmm. Kenyan government was actually a very popular Mm -hmm. government. It was put there after many years of struggle. We finally... Right, after um, dictatorship, essentially. Yes, we removed the dictator. We changed and we promised people we were going to be a very clean government. And we declared that we were going to have zero tolerance, especially to corruption. And so it has come as a big surprise that (coughs) some of us have actually been found being so blatantly corrupt. And although... um, you mean some of the people in the current government? In the current yes. government. And and as you know, we have lost some ministers. They have not yet been tried. And so uh, we can't say that they are corrupt until, of course, they have been tried and they have been convicted. But the fact that uh, uh, the people who have been charged with the responsibility of uh, curbing corruption have come up with accusations yes. that we in the government are corrupt. That has been extremely painful and very uh, devastating to some of us because we we got in there 
mm-hmm. to 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 clean the house mm-hmm. and but if you are outside or at the door you don't know what's happening inside the door and sometimes you can get very frustrated because if you are part of the government mm-hmm. and and therefore whatever is happening you are part and parcel and we have this policy and culture of collective responsibility um but we are I think that um there are people who are committed to good good governance and who will do everything to promote good governance but I also want to say that in any society it is very important that you have strong systems that will ensure that there are checks and balances to to protect even to protect those in leadership from mm. the great mm. temptations that I'm sure they are confronted with once they are in those positions of mm-hmm. power. I, I think it's really interesting that after this huge p- grassroots movement that you started, which in many ways remains grassroots, you also have come to emphasize the importance of what you call democratic space. Yes. And as you say, systems of checks and balance, yes. balances, pragmatic political structures. Yes. Yes, very, very important. Because what I have seen, uh, it, it was a progression. I started with a simple activity of planting trees. And I thought, of course, nobody would be bothered mm-hmm. about planting trees until I realized that people in the power don't like to see ordinary people organizing, mm-hmm. especially if those people in power are not, they do not have that belief in democratic space. Mm-hmm. They want control. That's why you don't want democratic space because you want to control people. Okay. And so the minute I started organizing people into groups and teaching them why we must protect the environment and of course eventually discovering that some of the corporates are the people in power. <laughs> and so we would say it is very important to have checks and balances so that even the people in power are not able to destroy the environment because if they are left alone they will destroy like they were trying to privatize that little forest we were talking about in yeah. Nairobi so the minute we started discussing not only the symptoms that we were trying to address but the causes of those symptoms we got into trouble with the government because the government didn't like us mm-hmm. addressing the causes because they were part of it. Right. So it's it, it becomes it became very clear to me uh that you cannot manage the resources sustainably. Okay, we're back at sustainability. We are back yes. There. Yes. You cannot do it sustainably and you mm-hmm. cannot share the resources equitably either at the national level, regional, or even a global level mm-hmm. if you don't have systems of governance okay. that facilitate that. Okay. And that's that brings us to to the point where the the Nobel the Norwegian Nobel Committee recognized that in order to for us to live more in peace in mm-hmm. the future mm-hmm. and especially with the resources uh being so limited and with the population rise still continuing it is very important for us as a human family to recognize the need for us to manage these the resources we have sustainably mm-hmm. share them equitably but we cannot understand and appreciate that we can raise that's what i was talking about when i raised i said we must raise the level of consciousness right right to get to the point where we appreciate that you can't do so if you don't have the right systems of governance and therefore deliberately preempt 
potential conflict. Okay. I see you getting um, restless. Are we out of time? You can ask another question. Okay. Okay. Great. All right. Okay. I do want to. I just wanted to work. Um, Let me just look at my notes to see. um, um, There's so much we could talk about. Um, Let's see. What? She's getting some more water. Okay, good. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'll go ahead and just ask you this. I, I wonder sometimes there's there's so much attention suddenly um, to Africa. In the, you know, the, there's the G8. There's uh, there's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There's uh, Bono. <laughs> I've wondered how all this attention feels for someone who's in Africa, who's been working on these, uh, on all kinds of local issues and regional and national issues for a long time. Uh, Yeah, one thing I would say is that, unfortunately, the press... uh, No, there's a lot of hype around uh, the attention sometimes... Uh, to the African continent is often in relation to tragedy that has hit. Yes. And, or terrible diseases yeah, or that terrible are out of raging. Yes. And, and, and quite often people tend to uh, almost pretend that they didn't know what was happening there. So suddenly there has been this eruption like a volcano. But right. these things are happening all the time. You're dealing with them all the time for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I was saying the environment is very important. Let us focus on it. But believe me, there are very few people who want to give you money to take care of the environment. They'll give you money to buy drugs. They'll give you money to buy guns. They'll be, give you money to, uh, to do other things. But when it comes to uh, taking care of the environment, that can wait. Okay. And yet we know that the hunger... That, that eventually has the face of that starving, emaciated uh, woman or man or child in, on television, that didn't happen yesterday. Mm-hmm. It has been happening for a very long time. And that's related to the environment. And some, and, yeah, and mm-hmm. it's related to the environmental right. management. It's related to the environment at the source rather than just feeding people once they're yes, hungry. Yes. yes, and it's also related to governance. And I remember, it's only recently, very, very recently, especially since the fall of the Berlin War, that we started seeing... Uh, our leaders in Africa being uh, told by their partners in the developed countries to practice good governance. Excuse me, problems in Africa didn't start after the Berlin (laughs) (laughs) warfare. They have been there. But especially since independence and up to that point, we have been dealing with very dictatorial governments, very destructive governments, governments who did not respect the the human rights, they violated their people, they, they facilitated the exploitation of their people, they looted the treasury, and much of that money was actually hidden in the in banks in the Western countries, mm. they accumulated debts, and and th- much of that money never reached the people. And as you know, we have been uh, campaigning 
for for now for a long time to have these debts cancelled uh, and it hasn't happened although I must give credit to G8 and people like right. Bono they're, they're working <laughs> very hard right now yeah. and trying to address that issue but unfortunately people who are on the ground like us you can talk all day you are not headline but fortunately when Bono talks <laughs> and he says that he is he can't believe what he sees in Africa when he comes, then the press pays attention. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank Bono and all those um, very important, especially uh, um, personalities, celebrities, uh, who put their names against these uh, okay. problems and who wants, who draw attention to the world. But it is not because the world doesn't know that these problems are there. <laughs> they know, but they ignore them. But unfortunately, it takes people like Bono, uh, people like Gadoff, uh, mm -hmm. to, to, for, for some of these leaders even to begin to think there. Yeah, now, <laughs> since these people have spoken. And, and so I'm very, very happy that, that we have these uh, celebrities who actually come out and raise these issues and, and make it possible for, for, for governments that can do something, do something. But it's always very, very difficult. One of the biggest problems we have, even with a, a program such as the Green Belt Movement, is uh, how to raise money. Mm -hmm. And, and to raise enough money, not only to respond to the activities in Kenya, but to respond to the activities uh, in the whole region. Right. Um, I, I have been giving an example of the, just to give people an idea of the environmental challenge that we have in Africa. Uh, I mentioned the Congo forest ecosystem. Uh, I want to mention the fact that when the, when the commander Collins and his and her colleagues went to the space recently with the Chateau Discovery. Yes, they had a very interesting experience on their way back. They they said that they saw a thick blanket of dust over Africa, and that dust was due to deforestation. Hmm. It was due to devegetation. It was due to cultivation of land, literally removing vegetation from the land and exposing the soil. Okay. Now, the challenge for the African people is to plant those trees. <laughs> now, I am trying to and tell that's people what you're plant doing. trees. Okay. <laughs> but I think I need Bono okay. <laughs> to, say plant to come trees. and say, Help Wangari plant trees. All right. And so then I might get the money. I'm really glad I gave you a chance <laughs> to say that on the radio. I want to ask you one more question. We started out talking about growing up and in, within your culture, um, uh, trees were holy places or they created holy places. And um, you had a Catholic upbringing. I mean, you read the prophet Hosea <laughs> when you were fighting some of your darkest battles. I, w I want to ask you about your image of God. How do you think about, um, that's a hard, I don't usually ask people a direct question like that, yeah. but I'd be really curious <laughs> about your response to what is your work with trees? Um, I mean, all the work you've done, the battles you've fought, and, you know, even your, your new awareness of the importance of democratic spaces. Mm. I mean, how does all of that flow into your understanding of? Yeah, well, 
<clears throat> These big as religious in, questions. Yeah. Well, well, you know, as you know, I'm not a theologian, so I would no, shock right. the theologians about my concept of God. But when I was um, in the in a Catholic school uh, in my in Nyeri, which is uh, when I was doing my primary education, I was actually in the, uh, being taught by sisters of the consulata order, order of the consulata, uh, who come from Milan, by the way. And and the, their founder recently became beatified, by the way, so they're on mm. the right track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, at that time, I must say that religion was extremely superficial in the way that God was presented to us. Mm-hmm. Because God was presented to us in the way he appears in the Sistine Chapel. Okay. You know, by Michael Ajero. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> at that time, it was, um, I would say, a very superficial presentation of God, almost like a human person. And with the minds of a young person, uh, you almost felt like, yeah, God is somewhere in Rome or somewhere in the sky, or mm-hmm. in the clouds. And then, of course, you remember I, my own background, and I was already removed from my own background because my parents had already converted into Christianity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> from but, Kikuyu culture. Yes, mm-hmm. but, there was all, but there was always that influence uh, of, for example, the fact that they believed that God lived on Mount Kenya. Yes. <laughs> and... And they had a, a great reverence to Mount Kenya. And so in the course of my environmentalism, I have often visited those two concepts of, of the way uh, my ancestors presented God to me and the missionaries presented God so to me. So the Sistine Chapel or Mount Kenya. Yeah. Now, uh-huh. now where is God? Right. Uh, and I tell myself, of course, now we are in a completely new era when we are um, uh, we are learning to to fight God not in a place but rather in ourselves in each other in nature that God is is you know in in many ways it's a contradiction because the church teaches you that God is omnipresent mm-hmm. now if he is omnipresent. He's in Rome, but he can also be in Kenya at the mm-hmm. same time if yeah. he is omnipresent. So we, I have had this transformation for me of who God is. I still believe strongly that there is that power, his shape, his size, his color. I have no idea. But you are influenced by what you hear, what you see. But I still, when I look on Mount Kenya, it is so magnificent it is so overpowering. It is so important to su- in, in sustaining life in my, in my area that sometimes I say, yes, God is on this mountain. <laughs> and I don't have a contradiction. But I don't pretend that I know where God, as the theologians would have us, is. But I want to say that God is in me God is in you, God is in the trees, God is everywhere 
if God is everywhere, if that concept of omnipresent is true, then God is everywhere. He doesn't have shape. He doesn't have size. He doesn't have color. So we ought to see God in every one of us. And if we did see God that way, we would have a different idea of how we should relate to each other and to the other species. Thank you so much, Wangari Matai. Most welcome. Uh, I actually believe we're all theologians, so. <laughs> well, well, that's it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. Yeah. We are all theologians. Now, did I say that correctly? Wangari Matai. Yeah, perfect. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Most welcome. What an, what an honor. What? Oh, you know, we... That we could get. Yeah, oh, we or can find we can it. Find you can tell we can try to get it. Even if music that's important to you has been important in some way in this movement. I would have to ask them. <laughs> I would ask which, uh, because we do sing sometimes, but those are very local songs. Like um, uh, one song that I always sing when when we are together with the women. Here comes my faith, is that because there is a lot of um, our people are still very religious, and so quite often when I'm talking to them, I use religious songs, and one. One song that we always sing is uh, is one that says there is no other God, uh, there is no other God but Him, and uh, uh, there is no other power but Him. It him? Uh, it's a it's like a chorus. Okay. Yeah. So you want me to sing for you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I can. Yeah. <laughs> well, give me hot water. <laughs> Open the. You know, I don't know that it's heated up. Actually, it's cold. Is the coffee hot? Yes. It's bad. I warned you. Bad coffee, but. Oh, are you going to have coffee? Well, I don't usually take coffee, so. It doesn't. It's so weak. It doesn't have caffeine. Is that so? Do you want anything with it, or just plain? Just plain. Just to keep my. <laughs> and this and this kind of song would be very appropriate because when we are singing, when we are moving, we always wanted to be peaceful, um, non-violent. So singing religious songs was a very common thing. Okay. <laughs> we go. Yeah. Hakuna mungu kama yeye hakuna kama yeye hakuna mungu kama yeye hakuna mungu kama yeye Hakuna upedo kama wake Hakuna 
kama wake hakuna upedo kama wake hakuna upedo kama wake hakuna nguvu kama zake hakuna kama zake hakuna nguvu kama zake hakuna nguvu kama zake thank you <laughs> it's beautiful is that this did you say the the title is or the is But that the god is there's one god no it says um there is no there is no there is no god like him there is no god like him and you, you it's just a chorus yeah mm -hmm. so and then you say there is no god like him there is no life love like his there isn't there is no love like his and there is no strength like his no strength like his thank you <laughs> okay yeah. This is in Kiswahili. Because I can also sing it in another language. <laughs> <laughs> There is no God. And that's the same song? Yeah. The Hakuna Mungu means there is no God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or did you want me to say, to write no, no, the whole no, no, thing? No, no, no. no. This he, is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Hakuna Mungu, there is no God. That's perfect. That's uh, perfect. In Swahili. Thanks very much. All right.